I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Looking at the lay of the political land, there are plenty of reasons for Democrats to feel down. I'm Ryan Grimm, and today on Deconstructed, we'll talk about a bunch of those. But more importantly, we'll talk about what Democrats actually can do in the next few years, even in the face of steadfast Republican opposition. But first, the bad news for the party. Both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are in tight races in Georgia for the January runoffs, and failing to take the Senate would badly hobble a Biden administration's legislative agenda. A 6-3 Supreme Court is likely to be hostile to executive action and regulation, to say the least. The pandemic is surging and the economy is slowing. And without the ability to legislate, the capacity of the government to respond to the economic slowdown would be in the hands of Mitch McConnell, who has repeatedly shown a willingness to scorch the earth and every norm on it if it means a slight relative increase in his own power or the power of the right. Meanwhile, Republicans across the country are salivating at the prospect of a gerrymandered 2022 midterm wipeout. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has already promised the GOP will retake the House. And that would mean two years of investigations into Biden between then and the 2024 presidential election. Republicans have shown a complete disregard for democracy in the wake of the November 3rd elections, or, at minimum, are fine with dispensing with it for partisan gain. Rudy Giuliani on Thursday cited My Cousin Vinny while insisting the election was stolen. Did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? You know the movie? It's one of my favorite uh, war movies because he comes from Brooklyn. And uh, when the the nice lady who said she saw, and then he he says to her, how many fingers do I, how many fingers do I got up? Some Michigan Republicans, meanwhile, have been fighting certification of the election and Trump celebrated them by bringing them to the White House. In what would be a long shot move to change the Michigan electors, President Trump has reportedly summoned Michigan Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky and House Speaker Lee Chatfield to the White House. The next time Republicans consolidate power, the onslaught on voting and elections will be fierce. And it's all happening amid a backdrop of ecological and climate collapse, fueling a rise of ethno-nationalism and reactionary politics around the globe, which itself is further fueled by mass migrations precipitated by the crisis. The world is falling apart, and the right's authoritarianism is an attractive response to a frightened and divided public. The good news is that we're not there yet that Democrats have agency and power if they choose to use it, and that the country still believes in the cultural norms of democracy, which are far more important than laws on paper. The public has decided that Trump has lost the election, so he has to go. Democrats need to harness that belief and push forward. Even though the stakes of the contest couldn't possibly be higher, paradoxically, small moves one way or another can be decisive. Both parties can expect at least, say, 47% of the vote each election cycle in this sharply divided country, meaning control goes to the party that can win those few extra points through a combination of mobilizing its base, organizing new voters, persuading people to switch, and fighting off efforts to steal an election. And so small wins by Biden on behalf of the public, if they move just a few percent, can have huge ramifications. And it turns out there are a few things Biden can do unilaterally that would create goodwill and grow the economy and drive up wages. And that's what people vote on. The most important thing Biden can do is make sure the Federal Reserve will dedicate itself to creating jobs and growing the economy. There are actually indications that Trump's pick for the Fed, Jerome Powell, has a surprising appetite for aggressive intervention on behalf of people struggling in this economy. Late on Thursday, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announced that he was ending several Fed lending programs, including one aimed at Main Street, and Powell publicly protested, a rare move from a Fed chair. The Fed bucking an administration isn't necessarily something to encourage, but the aggressive impulse to use all the tools at the Fed's disposal certainly is. 
Chuck Schumer, meanwhile, is urging Biden to forgive the first $50,000 of everyone's student debt, which he can do by executive order. The average debt load is around $30,000, meaning millions of people would see their debt wiped out. The average monthly payment is around $400, which means that people making that payment would now have an extra $400 every month to spend. That's a serious economic stimulus, and it's one that voters would reward Democrats for. Biden can also direct the Department of Labor to block companies from screwing workers out of overtime, which they do by misclassifying them as managers. Companies like Dollar General are the worst offenders. The people in those stores stocking shelves and working the register are often called managers by the company, which allows them to pay no overtime on top of their low salary. If that practice is ended, millions of people could see increases in their paychecks. And we're not talking about a small amount of money. Matthew Cunningham Cook, an Intercept reporter, has a news story this week about how Georgia Senator David Perdue, one of the ones who's up for re-election in January, got rich exploiting just that loophole as CEO of Dollar General. Now, Schumer has also suggested descheduling marijuana, which means that as far as the federal government is concerned, it would no longer be illegal. That would trigger another economic jolt as pot shops in states where it's legal would finally have legal access to the banking system and to accountants, creating good paying jobs up and down the industry. At the federal level and in states controlled by Democrats, drug related records could be expunged, voting rights restored. None of this might be enough under normal circumstances to fend off the typical wave that strikes an incoming administration during its first midterm. But Democrats might have a COVID-19 ace up their sleeve. If a vaccine does begin to be deployed to frontline workers in December or January and gradually to the rest of the population throughout 2021, the economy could begin fully opening up in 2022. The one piece of legislation Republicans have consistently shown themselves unable to resist is a tax cut, which gives Democrats a chance to win some extra stimulus, money for clean energy projects, for instance, and further juice the economy in exchange for dumping a few more piles of cash onto the stacks of the already very rich. And the Senate map in 2022 is actually pretty good for Democrats. In other words, the party could have a real tailwind in 2022 but they need to get their damn plane in the air if they're going to catch it. There's a lot of ways to do that. Later on, I'll talk to Damon Drummer and Bob Hackett of New Consensus, a climate-focused think tank that released a provocative new plan this week, laying out what it thinks a creative Federal Reserve could do not just to boost the economy, but to transform it too. But first, I'm joined by Dave Dayan of The American Prospect, who launched a project called The Day One Agenda, focusing on what Biden can do immediately. Dave, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks uh, for having me. Triumphant return to The Intercept. Indeed, Dave was a longtime contributor to The Intercept before he abandoned us for his uh, his, his new perch over over at The Prospect, which has been doing great work under his tutelage, and I you know, recommend everybody read it as often as they can. Uh, the, the project that I wanted to have him on to talk about today is called the, the Day One Agenda. This is something that Prospect is working on for a while. And it's called the Day One Agenda because it is a list of policies that uh, Joe Biden could enact the first day in office and Mitch McConnell can't do a thing about it. So, Dave, where did this idea come from? Well, it actually was one of the things that I really wanted to do when I got to the prospect last summer. Um, You know, during the campaign, there was a lot of sort of angst in the progressive community that even if uh, Democrats uh, won the White House, and, and, and at that time it was even if Bernie Sanders won the White House, that uh, Mitch McConnell would be a roadblock to his ambitions, whether he, uh, you know, whether Republicans still held the Senate or whether they had the ability to filibuster in the minority. And so, you know, there was a lot of talk about the filibuster and, and what's going to happen if, if what's the point of having a progressive president if, if they can't enact any legislation. And so, you know, in a, in a bid to sort of counter that despair, I started looking into these options that, you know, have been sort of floating around, uh, are always kind of on, uh, uh, on the fringes, maybe of uh, things that a president can do without legislation. Now, you know, during the Trump era, we've, we've heard about all these executive orders. 
he has taken action in a number of ways, even though the only major piece of legislation that he passed was the Trump tax cuts. Uh, but he has been able to transform areas like immigration and trade and foreign policy and health care and environmental policy through regulatory action and through other implementation of old laws. In fact, one of the most interesting ones that Trump did is he used to do the farm bailout, which was an attempt to compensate for his trade war. He used a policy from the New Deal called the Commodity Credit Corporation uh, to, to conjure up billions and billions of dollars to give to farmers. So this, you know, these examples were out there and uh, I, I wanted to sort of push them together and say, look, there is a robust agenda uh, that cr cuts across a number of different issue areas that any Democratic president could do just by implementing laws that are already on the books, already passed by Congress. And Mitch McConnell can do nothing about it. So that was the idea behind putting together the Day One Agenda, which we did last fall. And we should remind people that Congress very specifically did not fund his border wall. And yet as he leaves office, the, the, he's racing to complete vast stretches of border wall. So this is not just a theoretical exercise. There is, there is wall that has been constructed that Congress never authorized, yet the president had the power to have, have constructed any, anyway. And what, what, I, what I find most interesting about your day one agenda is not just, okay, the president can issue executive orders and kind of will these things into being, but the fact that there are actually all of these laws already on the books. And so when we say that the president can act without Congress, that's actually not precisely what you're often talking about because Congress already has acted. It's just that presidents haven't acted, but they could. Right. right. So, yeah. so w where, where are the areas that, that you see the most promise there? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, if you look at article two of the constitution, uh, all it says is that, uh, uh, the main function of a president is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Congress passes the laws, the president implements them. And we found a number of laws that were available to a president uh, to, to really make progress. So uh, one of the biggest ones that's been talked about a lot now and picked up by even Senate leadership is the cancellation of all publicly held student debt, which is about 95 percent mm -hmm. of all debt. Um, under the Higher Education Act, the education secretary can use an authority called compromise and settlement to essentially settle that debt and 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 cancel it, uh, any part of it or all of it if they want to. And this is we're talking about up one point five trillion dollars in debt that can be just wiped away uh, for a generation. And uh, uh, you know uh, what we know uh, through Federal Reserve studies and things like that is that student debt is a huge barrier to people. They essentially get a mortgage coming out of college. Uh, it's a barrier to them mm -hmm. doing uh, purchases of homes and cars and durable goods and things like that. And it's actually a really lead weight on the economy. So this is a, this would be a very consequential action. Right. Let's, let's dive into that for one second, because there have been some economists who have been pushing back on this and saying, well, it actually might not have that much of a stimulative effect. But I, what I think those economists seem to forget is that, like you said, if somebody goes to apply for a car loan or for a home loan, you have to list what your liabilities are. And you have to have a certain level of income against a certain level of liabilities. And so if you need to take out a $200,000 loan to buy, to buy a home, they factor into that what your student debt is and what your student payment right. is every month. So in other words, you're able to get a smaller loan for a car, smaller loan for a house, because you already owe the you already owe the the banks or you already owe the federal government for your education, so you you can't kind of put the car in in front of the line. But if you get rid of that, now all of a sudden you can afford a better house, you can afford a better car. Like, it, a, a, am I getting anything wrong there? Or what are the economists missing? No, that's that's absolutely right. It's called the debt to income ratio, and uh, it it really affects what you're able to do. So there's a a huge uh, sometimes it's called the wealth effect. Uh, if, if you relieve this burden of debt, suddenly people feel wealthier. They, they feel like, like they don't have this burden hanging over their heads and they can, they can take risks and, and, and do more kinds of things 
uh, economically. Um, even if you just look at it on the level of uh, monthly payments that would not have to be given out, which right now, you know, Donald Trump, uh, through an executive order, has actually paused those payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, the, you know, constitutionally, there's no reason why you can't just pause them indefinitely. Uh, even if you look at that number, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to get a, an exact number, but it's probably something around $90 billion a year mm-hmm. in terms of what people pay in student debt every year. And if you wipe all that away, uh, $90 billion a year, if you, if you do it sort of using the, the way that Congress talks about, which is the 10-year budget window, that's well over a trillion dollars mm-hmm. in that budget window, which, you know, that's almost the size of the Trump tax cuts. Right. And you can just do that <laughs> right now. Right. And that's real money that is not being paid to the government that, that then uh, people would have free to use in other means. Right. And Democrats are already starting to worry about a, a backlash if you did this. So what, what could Biden do for people who don't benefit directly uh, from right. a student lending cancellation. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think the good way to look at this is that this is an agenda. This is an agenda for action. So any one piece of it is only that. It's only a piece. So, for example, uh, if you're looking to raise wages, uh, there's something called high road contracting. The U.S. is uh, uh, you know one of the largest sort of uh, contractors in the world. They're an, an employer uh, uh, in, t- in terms of sending out federal contracts to corporations who then uh, do the work. And you could, by executive order, say that all federal contractors have to pay a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's about one quarter of the workforce works for a company that is a federal contractor at some level. And if you put them all on a $15 an hour minimum wage, that is a huge boost at the low end of the scale, probably people who right. didn't go to college. Uh, uh, or, or have any student debt who uh, would benefit. Another good one is uh, drug patents. So the way, the, the way it works is the federal government uh, issues patents to drug companies and drug companies have exclusive rights to sell those drugs uh, at any price they want to for a number of years. And uh, what the government can do with something called march-in rights is if they see that a drug is being sold at an exorbitant rate, they can seize that patent. They can take the patent back and issue it to generic manufacturers with the proviso that they would sell it at an affordable Mm -hmm. rate. So this would be a a huge spur to lower prescription drug prices. Uh, uh, Obviously, who uses prescription drug prices? The elderly, which have a very low level of student debt, right? (laughs) Um, So uh, you can can fashion this to create tangible benefits across the economy that would be very broad-based. It wouldn't just be college-educated uh, uh, individuals, although I will say that uh, there are pretty credible studies that uh, uh, student debt affects disproportionately Black and Latino individuals because uh, a lot of that money comes from for-profit colleges and, and, and uh, those kinds of universities. Right. You look at this as an agenda, uh, you can do it in a broad-based way that really would affect everybody in the country. What about climate change? You know, you said your team identified 277 different policies that, that could be enacted, and and a bunch of those, uh, 54 of them, were in were in the climate uh, space. What are the what are the kind of the, the big ones that that people can push for? Sure, um, you know, I mean, uh, that 277, by the way, came from uh, reading the Biden Sanders Unity Task Force. So it wasn't just pie mm-hmm. in the sky. This this was things that Biden has agreed to through that task force uh, as priorities for him that he can enact by executive action. So uh, as you mentioned, 54 of those were around uh, climate. And there's there's really a panoply of things that you can do, uh, some of which Biden has said he would do, like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement or uh, limiting the uh, leasing of oil and gas leases on federal lands. Uh, You can do the same thing with limiting fracking leases on federal lands. Uh, You can uh, uh, issue new rules around methane and other kind of gases uh, to to cut down on them. You could reinstitute the Clean Power Plan, which is what uh, President Obama uh, instituted to limit 
pollution at uh, carbon-fired power plants. So there are a number of things you can do. Can he do that quickly to get, since it already went through you know, all of the different rulemaking and uh, the, uh, the, all of the obstacles that it, that it takes for these regulations to, to actually begin to take effect? You know, Trump then wipes them away. Does Biden have to take another five or six years like Obama did for some of these? Or can he just flick a switch and say, look, we already did this one. We're just putting it back up, up on the board. Yeah, it, it won't be overnight, but it can be a lot faster than what Obama did. Because what if you look back at the, at the history here on, on the Obama administration, they were trying to get bipartisan solutions in Congress for, for years. And only in like the fifth or sixth year of the Obama administration did he say famously, I have a pen and a phone and I can, I can do things by executive order. Uh, so at that point, they took the time and, and created the clean power plan. Now that it's written, uh, you still have to go through administrative procedure, which is the notice and comment period and, and, and various other things. But you don't have to do all the research to figure out, uh, you know, uh, the authorities and, and, and the way in which it would be constructed. So that can go, I think, much quicker, especially if you're committed to it on day one. So, uh, you know, maybe does it take a year? It might take a year uh, to get get these things through the, the, the regulatory process. Um, but you can do it a lot faster than how Obama put it together. What, what about on the immigration front? What what is the administration able to do that can actually move people not just into you know protected from deportation status, but move them uh, you know in, in line for permanent residency or or, in, or for citizenship? Well, we have a story coming out on this, uh, I believe, next week or the week after. So uh, I don't want to give away absolutely everything, but <laughs> you can look at this on on two levels. Uh, the first level is the reversal of, of Trump programs. So, uh, and the administration has has committed to at least some of that, including reinstating the DACA program to allow Dreamers who uh, came here as children uh, to stay in the country. So you can certainly do all of that. I mean, most, uh, if not all, of what President Trump put together on immigration, which was hugely consequential, almost all of that was done on, on, under his authority. It wasn't done through any kind of passage of uh, laws through Congress. Uh, money was appropriated in that fashion, but the actual policy, that was all uh, uh, on Trump. So Biden can obviously reverse that. But there are things that are a bit more radical that uh, uh, can, uh, you know, steps that can be taken. Um, uh, one is uh, uh, enabling and facilitating appeals for people who are already deported. Um, uh, which would actually bring them back into the country, almost like a, a clawback kind of situation. Uh, I think that's a very big one. We're going to have a story on that pretty soon. Um, but uh, what we're looking at is, is you know, going beyond just reversing Trump stuff and, and going back to the sort of 2016 state of Obama uh, but uh, even improving that, increasing the quota uh, in terms of legal immigration, uh, adding, uh, uh, you know, changing the uh, discretionary ways in which ICE and, and, and these other authorities uh, deport people, uh, you know, reserving that just for the, the uh, just for criminal uh, uh, charges or things like that. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do. Dave, what about on, on healthcare? You had a provocative piece recently about how he could just simply give everybody Medicare. How does how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, during the Affordable Care Act uh, negotiations, uh, Max Baucus, who is the head of the Senate Finance Committee and a senator from Montana, added this provision that gave all the residents of Libby, Montana, Medicare for free. Uh, the residents of Libby, Montana, it's a small town, about 2,500 people. Uh, there was a vermiculite mine uh, run by the W.R. Grace Company that was basically poisoning the, the, the town. It was spewing asbestos into the atmosphere and causing massive rates of mesothelioma and cancer throughout the city. And so uh, this, this provision was put in to say that all of the health uh, effects from this environmental exposure would be covered under Medicare by the federal government, and it, there wouldn't even be any copays or anything like that for the citizens of Libby, Montana. Now, in the legislation, in the Affordable Care Act, it said that the Health and Human Services Secretary can can 
authorize other pilot programs around that to cover anyone who's suffering from an environmental exposure. Well, what do we have right now? We have the coronavirus. We have an environmental hazard in the atmosphere that uh, is affecting millions and millions of people. You know, there's certainly within that statute the ability for HHS to start a pilot program that says anyone who is exposed to the coronavirus uh, can uh, uh, get Medicare to cover their long-term health needs. And what we know and what we're learning from the science is that there are a lot of potential long-term health complications, Mm -hmm. heart disease, lung disease, mental health disease uh, from coronavirus. So uh, this would be a way to cover those costs. Now, in Libby, what they did is they covered the entire town. They said, like, not just everyone who's exposed, but anyone threatened to be exposed Mm -hmm. in the future from this asbestos poisoning, we're going to cover you. You know, if you want to be really aggressive about it, pretty much everyone in the country is at threat of being exposed for coronavirus. So you could kind of do Medicare for all if, if you really, really want to under this statute. Now, do I think Joe Biden's going to do that? No. Uh, he ran on not, uh, <laughs> he ran on explicitly against Medicare for all. He's not going to do it. However, I'd say two things. Number one, he did promise during the campaign that anybody exposed uh, and contracting the coronavirus would uh, get free treatment. And this is a way for him to be able to do that, is to put them on Medicare. The second thing is, this is just the way that a Biden administration is going to have to think about things. I mean, at best, they're going to have a 50-50 Senate. Uh, At worst, Mitch McConnell is going to be in control of it. Legislative action, even in the best case scenario, is going to be pretty remote. Uh, They need to be thinking creatively about the laws that already exist and using them in such a way to make progress for people. If he wants to have a successful presidency, if he wants Democrats to be trusted again as a party that, that, that is doing tangible things for people, then him and his advisors need to be thinking about these kinds of actions. And what we've learned is that it's uh, you know hard to take things away from people once they have them. And I'd love to see you know a Republican Congress or a Republican Supreme Court try to take health care coverage away from people uh, who went through coronavirus. Like good luck. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And and finally, next in the show, we're going to have uh, the folks from New Consensus on to talk about their plan specifically around what the Federal Reserve could uh, could do under aggressive leadership. Uh, have you taken a look at some of the ideas that they put out? And, and what, what do you think the, the uh, creative Fed uh, could be doing under a Biden administration? Oh, absolutely. What they're talking about is, is sort of using the Fed as, as kind of a funding engine for projects that uh, we, we need to, to, to move forward. The thing I've been talking about a lot during the pandemic is the ability for the Federal Reserve to help bail out state and local governments. So uh, the, 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 one of the biggest consequences of the pandemic has been this huge revenue shortfall in the states. Uh, we saw this after the financial crisis where the recession uh, caused this massive austerity in the states because the states can't, by and large, uh, uh, spend uh, money they don't have. They have to balance their budget. And so when that revenue shortfall happens, they have to either raise taxes or cut spending. And this was a huge problem in the financial crisis. It almost offset some of the spending at the federal level and really stunted the recovery. So we're, we're, we're walking into that again because the federal government has not supplied any fiscal support Uh, in general, for states to cover those revenue shortfalls. There is a program at the Federal Reserve called the Municipal Liquidity Program, uh, Municipal Liquidity Fund, or MLF, and uh, it's supposed to give loans to to cities and states to uh, be able to to keep up with funding. Uh, That has been pretty unsuccessful. I believe only two loans have been administered. There's been a lot of pushing for the Fed to change its terms, and it has changed them a little bit, but it hasn't gone the way that it actually could go, which would really uh, uh, counteract the uh, possibility for austerity. And the way it would work is that under Section 14 of the Federal Reserve Act, the, 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 the Fed can lend 
short-term, six-month uh, uh, loans to uh, cities and states, but then credibly commit to rolling them over for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, uh, essentially giving them a line of credit mm -hmm. uh, for uh, a, an indeterminate period. And uh, they wouldn't have to worry about uh, getting any uh, right now under the current program, tr the Treasury Department has to give a certain amount of money that uh, to cover any losses that might be incurred. And uh, that gives Treasury a say kind of in what's going on, which is why the, the program hasn't been successful, because Steve Mnuchin has basically blocked uh, the ability for the Fed to, to lend more freely. Freely, but uh, under Section 14, you don't need Treasury's input. So the Fed, on its own, could do these long-term or, or, or short-term but long rollover of uh, of these loans and uh, allow cities and states to fund operations well into the future. Right, and that, and that's where it starts to matter to to people because that that's that's what funds uh, firemen that's the, the, or the fire safety that's what funds teachers right we're talking exactly the, you know the bus system the subway like right and, and and as you said in the during the the great recession the cities laid off so many people it it kind of counteracted the gains being made as a result of the stimulus yeah that's right and uh, you know the Fed's mission is to promote full employment or maximize employment. And there's nothing bigger uh, on the horizon than massive cutbacks at the state and local level in terms of employment. Uh, all those people that you talked about, firefighters, teachers, police, uh, 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 bus drivers, public employees of any kind, uh, are, are, would be the first to go. They would be on the chopping block if nothing is done from the federal level uh, to uh, cover those those revenue losses that we've seen and are going to continue to see, especially if we go into more lockdowns. So uh, the Fed has the opportunity to act here, and uh, certainly a, a, a Biden Fed uh, could do so. Right. And the bottom line here is if we end up blowing up our cities and states, we've, we've done so as a choice, not as a necessity. Um, Dave, thanks for this important work of yours. Congrats on, on the on the great coverage over at The Prospect. And, and thank you for joining us here on Deconstructed. All right. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That was Dave Dayan of The American Prospect. I'm joined now by Damon Drummer and Bob Hackett from New Consensus to talk about the Fed and what tools Biden has in his toolbox, no matter what McConnell wants to do about it. D Damon, tell us a little bit about why you 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 dug in on on the Fed here. Uh, we dug into the Fed because I think it is perhaps the most misunderstood institution in America. Right, it's a very hot button institution, and I think this idea that uh, we, we've all experienced uh, in 2020 how the Federal Reserve has been almost like the backstop uh, for functional government and getting dollars out and liquidity into the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think the assumption is that Fed action only happens in a way that enriches the already wealthy. And so what then can the Fed do for Main Street, right? Uh, and that's been our driving question here. And so it is well within the president's power, uh, the president-elect, uh, who has won, right, uh, who has an aspiration and ambition to lead this country forward, who has an aspiration and an ambition to lead the country into the future, whether or not Democrats can win the Senate, uh, whether or not that happens, uh, President-elect Biden has the potential 
to really lead the country forward. And that is in offering leadership, not just to, you know, the country and healing, but in working with institutions, not only within his administration, but things like the Federal Reserve, working with Fed Chair Jerome Powell, just like the past administration did to get uh, resources and money into the economy and to do that in a way that actually can rebuild Main Street and set this country on a path for uh, economic prosperity uh, moving forward into a greener, more sustainable future. Uh, so, Bob Hockett, what is the Fed legally allowed to do? Like, what's in the Fed's mandate? Yeah, this is really an interest. It's a great question for one thing, and the answer to it is actually much more interesting than I think most people realize. So, Congress established the Fed over a hundred years ago now uh, to function as a kind of you know something sort of akin to a network of regional development institutions, development finance institutions. And people often get confused about this. They'll say, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve. Nobody seems really fully to understand what it means. When we say that it's the Federal Reserve System with a Federal Reserve Board at the top uh, and then uh, a sequence of or a group of 12 district Federal Reserve Banks scattered across the country. Those banks, those Federal Reserve Banks that are spread across the country are meant basically to assist with the financing of local startup companies, small businesses, local enterprises, Main Street businesses, even small family farms in some cases. The whole idea was to sort of evenly develop the American economy, which was very unevenly developed and underdeveloped really in 1913. And that original mandate, I think, is really in a sense coming back to the fore now after the last several decades of dysfunction. And now, of course, in the midst of a pandemic and associated crisis. Okay, so, Damon, I'm worried we might be boring people with uh, talk of the Fed. So let, let's let's bring it down to something that they would that they would immediately understand. You you talk about you know these basically these virtual wallets where the Fed could actually just pump money into a bank account uh, that, that a regular person holds, and and I would I would suspect that people's ears just perked up a little bit. How would that work? <laughs> the idea here is that you know the Fed, particularly since two thousand eight right, has been in a self-examination mode, right. right? We saw what happened in 08 where, you know, Fed pumps liquidity into the economy and a lot of it just gets accrued to shareholders, right? Uh, so the question is, what can we do for Main Street 2020, COVID, recession, uh, historic recession? Uh, and we see the same thing happening, but we have the municipal lending instruments and also the Main Street lending program, uh, both of whom, or both of which, uh, have seen, you know, they're interesting, they're novel, they're innovative, but we see their limits. And so this is an opportunity to continue. Yeah, and I wanted people to understand that. The, so the Fed is right now doing some innovative stuff. With That's right. Lending, you know, talking about lending directly to municipalities. Mm -hmm. That's right. And the, the best way to look at this, right, both of these facilities that Damon mentioned, the Main Street Lending Program on the one hand and the Municipal Liquidity Facility, or MLF, on the other hand, were introduced in April. And in effect, this was a real game changer in the sense that the Fed was for the first time uh, in probably 80, maybe 75 years sort of recognizing that it really has to be working on behalf of Main Street and small towns and the whole country, not just for New York City uh, and Wall Street. But the problem that DeMond was alluding to is that the MLF is run entirely out of the New York Fed. And as you guys know, I used to work there. I love them. They're very serious people. But, you know, five or 10 or 20 staffers do not understand the liquidity needs of all of the little towns across the country, like Billings, Montana or Oahu. And similarly, the, the Main Street lending program is run into entirely out of the Boston Fed. I've worked with those folk as well. They're just as serious and hardworking and able as the people at New York. But again, with a shoestring staff of five or 10 or 15 people, you can't figure out, right, what the what funding or financing needs of Hank's tractor repair in North Dakota or, you know, uh, Nancy's uh, tire shop or whatever in, 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 in Montana, I'm sorry, in, in Texas uh, are. You really got to be spreading the administration of these programs across all of the regional Fed banks. That's why we have them. Right? There's a Dallas Fed. There's a, a San Francisco Fed. There's uh, a Minneapolis Fed. We've got Feds all over the country. So they should all be administering these programs, which are inherently local in character. And so I, I, what I love about the concept of the digital wallet is that, you know, the reason why the Fed seems to work for the financial sector is because money can get directly to banks. Uh, those same systems don't exist. Those same instrumentalities, those same tools don't exist uh, for small businesses. Right. So. The idea of digital wallets is really just leaning into this idea that institutions like the U.S. Digital Service are already thinking about, which is how do we have uh, the structures of our government, including the Federal Reserve, have a direct impact on, on Main Street, not just Wall Street, right? And so that's what this is about. And so I think with presidential leadership, working with 
uh, Chair Powell, right, with uh, the various institutions that the president can influence, can, within the current context of our system, really lead and, and make sure that absent Senate approval, um, it is well within the president's power and ability and authority, and indeed it's his mandate politically to uh, do what he needs to do to get our economy going again. I mean, Devon's put it perfectly right. Basically, the Fed functions at the moment as a sort of bank for the banks. Uh, and then the hope is that all Americans have their own banks. And so there's a kind of one-step removal right between us and the Fed. What we're advocating here is cutting out that middleman of the private sector banking institution. And in a sense, what the Fed would do is offer digital wallets to all small businesses and um, the citizens and approved re- residents of the United States in the way that it currently does uh, for banks, right? I mean, what it offers to the banks right now are Fed accounts, right? Accounts with the Fed. They're called reserve accounts. And what we're saying is that these reserve accounts that are only for banks should be replaced by digital wallets for all citizens, small businesses, and again, legal rent. Now, the Treasury, in effect, could do this already. I don't know if, if you guys were to Google or if your listeners were just to Google something called Treasury Direct, you would find that you can already open up a digital account with the Treasury right now from which you can buy Treasury securities and into which you can redeem or sell them back. These, what U.S. Digital Service has said, and Damon just mentioned them, is that they could convert these Treasury Direct accounts into P2P digital wallets in a matter of weeks. And so everybody could have digital banking basically overnight or within a month. Treasury could do that immediately. We could then migrate that system over to the Fed as a sort of replacement for the current system of bank reserve accounting with the Fed. And then the Fed could do monetary policy directly. It could credit our wallets when it wants to stimulate the economy. It could offer interest on those wallet accounts, meaning it could raise the rates when it wanted to tamp down activity if inflationary pressures were looming. Or it, of course, could lower those rates <clears throat> to stimulate or it could do helicopter drops of the kind that we tried to do this past spring but kind of failed at doing because we didn't have the infrastructure set up. Have there been pilot programs that have tried that? Are there people inside the Federal Reserve or the Treasury who are who are thinking along these lines? Well, I know that there are at Treasury because I've been talking to a bunch of them and trying to push this idea with them. The Fed, in some sense, in, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. So I'm working with the New York Fed folk now to develop a digital dollar that would work essentially along these lines. And the Boston Fed is working with some folk over at MIT to do something similar. And then the San Francisco Fed is working with me and some other folk at Stanford. I have a connection there, too, to try to do something similarly. The problem is that the Fed board, what they're focusing on at the moment, is something called Fed Now, which is basically just to speed up transaction rates um, between banks, right, which does nothing, of course, for the 25% of Americans who are either unbanked or underbanked. On the other hand, there are lots of people at the Fed who are very visionary and very devoted uh, to sort of improving things, especially at the regional Fed banks that we were talking about before. So I have every confidence um, that the Fed uh, would be kind of cutting edge on this as soon as we you know, told them that that would be part of the mandate. Are there central banks doing this elsewhere in the world? Yes. Yeah, the Riksbank in Sweden um, has already gone public with a similar plan. Uh, they started their pilot back in just this past February. Uh, it appears to be succeeding uh, quite well. So it looks as though essentially the e-Krona project is what they call it. It looks as though all Swedes will have something like this um, before, either toward the end of this year, within the next month or so, or very early next year. Uh, China is working on a sort of similar plan, but uh, it's a little different with them, of course, because it's a different mode of governance, you might say. So Sweden is probably the more interesting example for our purposes. And Ryan, if I may, you know, the digital taxpayer wallet is interesting, but I actually think the most, one of the most interesting parts of this plan, another interesting part is the idea of the spread the Fed. Right now, all of the Main Street lending operation is being run out of the Boston Fed. I think Bob says it's 15 people. Mm -hmm. What this proposal says is extend that capacity to every regional uh, Federal Reserve uh, bank uh, throughout the country and then get that capacity closer to Main Street, closer to the people, and make it work for the American people. Exactly. If, you're, if your listeners were just to Google spread the Fed, they'll find a million stuff, a million things that we put out under this, this sort of banner, you might say. Uh, and again, I can't emphasize too highly how this would bring the Fed back into keeping with its original mission. We all know the name of Carter Glass in connection with the Glass-Steagall Act. What many people don't know is that Carter Glass was also one of the framers of the Federal Reserve Act back in 1913. And the only way that Carter Glass was willing to accept a central bank in the U.S. is was with assurances that it would essentially be a network of regional development finance institutions and not simply a New York-focused, big bank, Wall Street-focused uh, mega institution. Carter Glass is probably rolling in his grave now, not only about the end of the Glass-Steagall Act, but also about what the Fed has become. But again, as DeMond just emphasized, the Fed is sort of inching its way back to its original mandate. And kind of one, one way of looking at what we're pushing right now is to say, okay, we 
now should stop inching back to the original mandate. We should fully restore and even buttress uh, and upgrade that original mandate as a kind of spread the Fed sort of proposal. And what, what's the argument for why the Fed should be playing that role and not local community banks or even, you know, too big to fail gigantic banks? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of reasons. I think Damon and I probably, probably both have mutually complementary answers to that. But the problem with the community banks now is that, you know, we used to have another legal structure in place, essentially that assured that we had enough community banks, right? Back until about 20 years, they were very significant and very stringent branching and um, interstate, uh, what were called interstate banking and branching restrictions. The whole idea was to keep private sector banks very locally focused. All of that stuff fell by the wayside during the Clinton years uh, in the mid and late 90s. And so what's happened now is, of course, we've seen immense concentration in the banking industry. As you guys know, the so-called big six really dominate the field. So without that, on the one hand, and then without any sort of federal instrumentalities acting, you know, be, sort of being act, you know, actively encouraging and fostering community banking across the country, as the Fed, again, was originally meant to do, there simply isn't, you know, there's basically a tendency for everything to kind of concentrate. And, and that, of course, accentuates the rural-urban divide, and it accentuates the racial wealth gap and the racial financial divide. Uh, you really have to force the distribution, in a sense, and make a national project of it. We know that from our history, and we've always done best when we've either made private sector banks be localized or when we've had federal institutions to substitute for those that we've also made localized. But right now, we've got a Fed that's sort of concentrated in New York in D.C., and then we've got a private sector banking industry that is similarly concentrated in New York City. So we really have to spread the Fed, even as a sort of prerequisite to spreading private sector banks again. So the, the mission of New Consensus is to transform the economy with an eye towards staving off a climate apocalypse. So how does this how does this all fit into to that mission? Can the Biden administration fund a lot of kind of clean energy and climate related projects you know, through these mechanisms? Absolutely. Uh, again, what the, the the idea here is that it's not just about you know uh, supporting Main Street and uh, in, in, in reinvesting in in this country, reinvesting in America, but it's doing that uh, with a national vision and a national strategy in mind. Right? Uh, it's very clear that President Elect Biden wants to lead this country into uh, the future wants to lead this country to a more sustainable and green uh, economy and have the country be a global leader in, you know, these new technologies and these new industries that will emerge. Uh, clean manufacturing, electric vehicles, all these things that other countries, mind you, that are our competitors and, and, and should be our partners are already doing, right? So we should be joining and at, at the very least be tracking with these other countries, if not leading. <laughs> so this is a strategy to... Um, to accelerate transitions uh, to these new technologies, uh, supporting the auto industry and accelerating its adoption uh, of production of electric vehicles and spreading that uh, productive capacity around the country and doing this across every single sector and industry that mm -hmm. we need, not to mention uh, fiber. You know, it would be great to have, you know, better mm -hmm. internet uh, capacity because everybody's working remotely and we'll have to do this probably again during the next pandemic. So there's a lot of investment that can be <laughs> uh, mobilized through this strategy and Biden can set up mm -hmm. the institutions and the direction to get that done. Yeah, and if I could add something really quick, you guys, um, to this, I mean, another part of the plan that DeMond and I are, are sort of talking up right now kind of complements the Fed aspect of it, and it's right on point with what DeMond just said. And that is, you know, we have multiple cabinet level agencies in our national executive that have jurisdiction over sectors of our economy. They have jurisdiction over particular industries and over particular infrastructures. And yet we don't have any sort of coordination among them when it comes to sort of developing what we might think of as a national development strategy or a national reconstruction and development strategy. And so another thing that Mr. Biden could do instantly upon taking office, it requires no legislation, whatever, is to form, to bring basically all of the, the heads of the cabinet cabinet level agencies, along with the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary, into one council that we're calling a National Development Council. And they would be a little bit like the FSOC, right, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and also like the defense department groups that sort of meet together to kind of carve out a national defense strategy over the long run. What they could do is to you know coordinate together to develop what we call a national development strategy so that basically you wouldn't have departments working across purposes with one another or in uncoordinated fashion. And so you could basically have a kind of a single overall sort of 
overview of the economy as a whole and the various parts of the country as a whole and sort of figure out what most needs doing in what parts of the country and in what industries. That's not to say you would be centrally planning everything or sort of doing all sorts of command and control stuff. It's just to say you would have a kind of orchestra conductor sort of thing going here where you would have a kind of coherent vision of the national economy as a whole, where we want it to be moving. And then you could start planning the specific federal investments through the Fed and other federal instrumentalities to jumpstart this stuff and get it going. And you could do it in every congressional district of the country, just as we did during the New Deal, which made the New Deal both, of course, wildly popular on both sides of the aisle and, uh, of course, just made it more just and more democratic. Let's say you could persuade the Biden administration to get to get behind this agenda. How do you go from there to making sure that the Fed actually carries through. You know, the Fed is in some respects politically independent. Obviously, the a concept of political independence itself is is nonsense. There's no such thing as political independence. But how, how do you how do you get the Fed to start creating these these projects and actually implementing this idea? Yeah. Yeah. So so the interesting thing here is that, yes, the Fed is independent, uh, but the president is the president. Right. And and there is tremendous power and coordination that comes with, you know, the Department of Treasury working with together with the Fed and setting fiscal and monetary policy in this country. And so this is really just leaning into that natural relationship. Uh, Bob can go into like the nuances of this, but at the high level, I, I think at an area that, you know, at a level that I think somebody who's not an expert can understand is that the Treasury and the Fed work hand in hand together. Uh, and this plan that we've outlined simply says, in working together with the Fed, there is a way for this new administration to lead. And this is uh, leading in a way that is not unprecedented. This is the same way that Hank Paulson was Bush's Secretary of the Treasury, uh, looked into the void in 2008, looked into the void and got creative and began to socialize a way of moving and got banks on board with it, right? And they pumped trillions of dollars into the economy. The same thing happened in 2020. What we're saying is do that, but make sure it hits Main Street and make sure you're pumping uh, money into the economy under the auspices of a national strategy so we're not funding fossil fuel infrastructure, right? So that we're not funding the industries of the past, but moving the country into the future. Can we turn this crisis into an opportunity? So that's how we're seeing this. Does Judy Shelton uh, play a role in all of this? For people who aren't following, Judy Shelton is kind of a, a nutty gold bugger who the Trump administration is trying to you know, slip into the uh, Federal Reserve on on its way out the door. Uh, d would her vote matter to Powell if Powell decided that he was going to get aggressive? Have you done a head count on the Open Market Committee and the other on the Board of Governors? Um, do, does do you think Powell has enough creative people around him? that if he could be persuaded to go big, that they'd go big with him? I think so. Um, I think, you know, a couple of things. First of all, as you know, a lot of Republicans who were previously kind of tepid about Ms. Shelton are now coming down against her. And it looks as though the Republicans now don't even have the votes that they need in the Senate to get confirmed. So this might be moved anyway. But even if it weren't moved and she were to get on, um, she seems to be a kind of opinion changer or position changer of convenience, right? And so I think when new winds are blowing, um, when the new Biden administration comes in, things are going to be much different, even when it comes to what her druthers are. But finally, even if that weren't the case, um, the board doesn't tend to be, it tends to operate by consensus. And in general, when you've got the weight of opinion um, sort of moving in a particular direction, and especially when the Fed chairs opinion moves in a particular direction. That tends to be the direction that the Fed goes. So I don't actually think she would turn out to be a problem ultimately, even if she were to get on. But as of today, it's looking very doubtful or certainly not. It's certainly nothing like a slam dunk that she's going to be on. Outside of the Federal Reserve, you also talk a little bit about the Army Corps of Engineers and some, uh, you know, and some other other ways of uh, kind of, you know, I wouldn't say bypassing uh, Congress, but doing doing what the White House can do without without Congress. Um, what what could the Army Corps do, and what can the Pentagon do that that isn't being done? Ton of cool stuff, but I bet Demond maybe is best to start that one off because uh, Demond sort of organized a bunch of white papers we did last spring in this connection. Yeah, I mean, so the the outgoing administration has shown that there are many ways to uh, allocate already appropriated uh, federal funds, right? Uh, to do uh, what the president wants to do. Uh, I mean, again, at the, at, at the most basic level, um, being uh, creative within the confines of the powers and duties of the president. 
uh, there are many ways <laughs> to um, to mobilize existing capacities and resources uh, toward a national strategy of of America being a leader, right? Uh, not just uh, in the in the in the in the climate fight, but rebuilding the domestic and econ- uh, the domestic economy. Um, you know, uh, we've seen um, the uh, we would say half-hearted use of the Defense Production Act uh, by the outgoing administration. Uh, there is some money left over. And so, you know, this is an emergency, not just COVID, but, uh, climate. How do you, um, deploy those same resources, uh, against, uh, one of many crises already going on. So, uh, there's so many different things to do. Again, Bob is the details guy, but at at, at a fundamental level, uh, Biden's job and the, the job of the Biden administration is to find the money that's already appropriated and use every penny of that uh, toward a national vision of prosperity and sustainability in the future. I, I guess last question, are, have you been in touch with people in the Biden administration or the incoming Biden administration? What indication do you have that they're thinking along these lines? So um, I'm in touch with quite a few. I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm quite surprised by how many of them I, I know. You know, I was a part of the Bernie Sanders team, both uh, in the 2020 uh, cycle and in the 2016 cycle. And so I, I sort of didn't anticipate um, that, you know, I would end up being a kind of Bidenite. But, you know, I have to say um, that Mr. Biden has just turned out to be an enormously impressive statesperson uh, since this past spring. Uh, and there are many manifestations of that. But one of them is that the teams that he is assembling really appear to be kind of um, half Bidenite half Berniecrat. He seems, in other words, to be trying to work a legitimate synthesis. Uh, Demond, what about you? Um, so yes, yeah, so we, we have the feelers out, and we're putting feelers out, uh, and I think also we're talking to the base and the public. Uh, you know, we saw the failures of the Paycheck Protection Program uh, in uh, supporting uh, Black-owned businesses. And uh, this is a way for Biden to make good on his promise uh, for being creative in repairing uh, the racial wealth gap. The first step to doing that, right, not even repairing the racial wealth gap, but like beginning to close it. The first step in doing that is to make sure that in this pandemic, in this recession, uh, no more black businesses go under for lack of access to public capital that is intended for them. So Biden has the mandate uh, and the responsibility to be to use the full uh, authority granted to him as president of the United States uh, to to do right by, you know, the folks who elected him in. Well, Damon Drummer, thank you so much for joining us. Bob Hockett, really, thank you for being here on Deconstructed. Of course, guys. Thank you so much. What an honor and, and what a pleasure. Thank you for having us. That was Damon Drummer and Bob Hackett of New Consensus. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much and see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.